0: Hello, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. Welcome to VUX World. This is an extra special episode we have today. We are joined by Matt Hartman of Beatworks, and we're going to be talking all about Beatworks, all about the voice industry, and all about Matt's Alexa Skill's experience, uh, the Hearing Voices newsletter, which plenty of you are probably already on if you're involved in the voice scene uh, and all of that good stuff like that. So delighted to have Matt with us today. Hello. Matt.
1: Thanks so much for having
0: me. we and we're also joined by Dustin Coates who is co-hosting once again. Hello Dustin.
1: Hello, looking forward to it today.
0: Hey so Matt you are over there in New York at the moment is that right? Yep. Fantastic. So do you want to, uh, there, be, might, there might be people who are listening who are familiar with Betaworks, there might be people listening who are familiar with yourself, but for those that aren't, do you want to just give us a little bit of a history behind your background and tell us a little bit about Betaworks?
2: Sure, I can tell you a little bit about mine and then maybe how it intersects with Betaworks. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so so I, uh, so I started out as a developer, uh, have built software for uh, a couple of different uh, different types of products. And then ended up joining a startup that was a uh, a consumer social product, kind of in, in twenty ten, and 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 that product uh, that company was backed by BetaWorks. So was, BetaWorks was a seed investor in that ah,
0: company. okay.
2: Um, we ended up selling that company to Facebook. I uh, moved on and and uh, started another. Co- I started a company uh, in Chicago. Uh, for a couple of years. And then when I moved back to New York, um, reconnected with a bunch of people from this. That startup was called Hot Potato. A bunch of people who I'd worked with were around BetaWorks. And so, what BetaWorks is, is a kind of a, a startup platform. So, John Borthwick started 10 years ago, and the, we actually just celebrated our 10th year anniversary. And the idea was can we can we pick a, in a particular category? And for us, it's very broadly, the intersection of media and technology, and we have some more specifics I can tell you about. But can we both build companies in parallel, so build a number of companies at one time, and then also seed invest in outside companies, and have the common thread that ties those together be that the categories that we're focusing on? So super early days, it was around real-time social media, and we had uh, investments in companies like TweetDeck and Twitter. And uh, and Tumblr, and we had builds out of BetaWorks. Uh, in companies like Bitly and Chartbeat. And all of those companies kind of tied together. They were in in the social media space, and some of them tied together very specifically. So like Bitly was used by Twitter, and Chartbeat existed because the real-time nature of Twitter meant that uh, publishers wanted to know who was on their site uh, at any given moment. And so the idea is whenever we pick a theme, we go really deep on that category. And uh, and so I joined about uh, almost exactly four years ago to do seed investing. And so, I joined, uh, I joined the, the operating company. They have made about uh, around 50 investments since I started. And, and then also, we raised the venture capital fund about two years in. And so, have, uh, uh, John, me, and then I have a partner uh, based in San Francisco, Peter Rojas, who's. Mm-hmm. Uh, are the three of us focused on the investment fund.
0: Wicked. So what does a typical day look like for you then at Betaworks? You've obviously got, um, if you if you build, so Betaworks build software themselves as well as invest in companies, it sounds as though you're more on the, the side of, of searching for, for companies to invest in. Is that right? What, what does yeah. a typical day look like for you? Yes. Yeah.
2: Yeah, so I mean, a lot of my time is meeting with brand new companies, uh, lear- learning a lot. So meeting with companies that are building in all kinds of different interfaces. One of the things we think about is every time there's a new interface, what is the Uh, What is the new way that people are going to communicate inside of that? And then additionally, are there business models that are brand new, that are reflective of new emerging consumer behaviors that are really tied to tech and tied to data? And so I spend a lot of my time just meeting with new companies, um, many of them are around our very specific themes, and then when there are things that are interesting a bit outside of our specific themes that we think we might want to get into and learn a little bit, we'll uh, talk with companies, partner with companies as well. Um, but my my main part of my day is talking with new companies, and then also supporting our existing portfolio of companies, and then of course helping the companies that are that are in our office that we're building uh, here.
0: Cool, and. So it started out looking predominantly at social media tools and things like that. So things like TweetDeck and um, Tumblr, they're they predominantly kind of social media focused. So what's led Betaworks then into the kind of conversational and voice space? Where did all that come from?
2: So I think if you think about the arc of how technology has progressed over the last decade, which is when Betaworks started, the, Betaworks sort of came to be when... Everyone was moving from desktop to the web, and then really from the web to the social web. And I think then the next wave was people moving to mobile. So, we had a whole bunch of companies that were focused ex- exclusively on mobile or mobile-first. I would argue, I, I said Twitter was social, but it's really, it's almost more of a mobile-first product. We invested, in, we invested in Venmo, which is, again, also very mobile-first. It kind of makes the most sense when you're when you're on your phone. And then, I think, when I joined, what we started to think about a bit was, what is after the home screen? What's your post home screen world look like? Where are the places where the next set of apps are going to live? And we started to see a couple of things. The one was that it's harder and harder for people who, to get for developers to get their apps downloaded, meaning it's more expensive, you have to do more marketing. And then we look at sort of what we think of as the post home screen world, what are the new places where software has surface area to exist? So one of those places uh, is in the camera, in sort of computer vision and augmented reality. Virtual reality is taking a little bit longer. We don't know when those consoles will really be at at scale, but virtual reality is certainly one. Conversational software, uh, meaning Products that exist in the messaging layer. So we built a company here at BetaWorks called Giphy, which is an anim- a search engine for animated gifs, and it exists in SEO. But it also, really, a lot of the places that people use it are inside of Slack, inside of uh, uh, Facebook and Twitter, inside of Messenger. And so it's it's almost like inside of the messaging messaging become this new communications layer. And so things like conversational software to be able to the ability to be able to sort of text with a server it became a new thing. So that was another category. And that one of the big areas for us in conversational software is not only typing, but it's also speaking. And as, with the rise of smart speakers, we got really interested in voice as a user interface.
1: And Matt, you've written and spoken a lot about what you call on-demand user interfaces, which I think ties in here. Sure. Can you talk about what that is?
2: So I kind of think of, um, there's two way, There's two aspects that are interesting to me about conversational software. Um, one of them, the the notion of on-demand interfaces, is that as people get uh, more and more devices, the software can wrap around their user experience, as opposed to them having to adopt the the vernacular of the of the product. So if we think about all the way back to the '50s, you have sort of remote controls. Um, you have to like use a user manual to figure out how to use that thing. As we, as we kind of come to today, we now have lots of different places. I almost picture the reason I called that post on-demand user interfaces is I almost picture it like, no matter what context I'm in, I am able to conjure up software. And so if that means that I'm at my desktop, then it's obvious that that's going to be on my desktop at my home. But if I'm walking around, then, uh, the fact that I have a phone in my pocket means that I, it already knows my location. I can get that on-demand user interface right on my phone. And then as we think about AirPods, as we think about being in your kitchen and your hands full, you asking, just sort of speaking out into the air and then having a user interface brought to you, speaking to you, asking you questions, becomes the interface of, of greatest convenience in certain mm-hmm. contexts.
0: And I think in that, um, me and Dustin have obviously done very similar homework in that um that post you are referencing one thing is the lack of friction which um an on-demand interface uh can can help with and what that i mean if if you could explain what how that would lead to a lack of friction first of all
2: sure so um let me give you a a sort of real world example uh there's we invest in a company called dirty lemon they sell they have uh, they started out selling functional beverages. So it's a, this is, I swear this is going to get to on-demand interface. They have a, uh, they have, it's lemonade, but it has activated charcoal. So it's good for a detox. And, and the only way they they started out selling it, the only way you could buy it was by texting them and, it, and then they would ship it to you directly. So imagine, so if we think about friction, what I'm talking about is how hard is it to get. To the thing that you want to get to. And I think that's two ways. One is sometimes friction means it's something's high up in your cupboard, it's harder to get there, it's, it's sort of a, a further reach. Sometimes friction is psychological friction. Like um, you might be more willing to post something on Snapchat because people, because it's like, a, it doesn't, it's not like Instagram where there's sort of more psychological friction. You want to make sure it looks perfect on Snapchat. It's like, oh, I'll put it up there, it doesn't matter. So if we take that back to Dirty Lemon, what they thought to themselves was, you know, people are going to have questions about this. If all they see is a website and it's either buy or don't buy and that's it, then there's going to be this consumer friction of whether I want to understand what the things I'm buying, what does the detox mean, when can I have, it, when can't I? But if I have a text message service where they have to buy it via text, then they can ask me questions. And that actually reduces the friction of the purchase. What that also means is that they then can get repeat purchases because people can just text back and say, hey, can I have another case? And what that teaches them you think about the cycle time versus of of selling directly to your customers having an interface like text message where you can ask them directly questions and get the feedback how did you like it i saw you just got the order what do you think you're reducing the friction which increases your the the actual sort of value of the products and if you compare that to sort of the traditional selling through a retailer, waiting for convincing a retailer, then them putting it on the shelf, then somebody coming in, then deciding to buy it, you don't really know why they bought it, then maybe they come back, you're sort of waiting two or three months to get that feedback where you could get it in a matter of of seconds or, or days uh, in in by communicating directly with the customer and having that new kind of communication channel.
0: And At the, kind of to wrap up the post, and we'll put the link to that post in the show notes because it's a really interesting post. You were kind of, you kind of summarized it by, so there's things in there that talk about design and how the these services are going to be delivered, not necessarily through a designed interface, but through an interface that might be standardized. So for example, you mentioned that you might order an Uber uh, via Alexa, get a confirmation text message to tell you it's outside and then a push notification asking for feedback or something like that. Uh, I wonder if you could speak a little bit about your thoughts on where design is going in that respect and, and whether or not you think that that is where it'll end up in, in, terms, in terms of standardization. I mean, I think
2: we've had this trend towards human-centered design for a while now. I think the interesting thing is that the the new products that are being built are really services, many of them. And so if we think about Uber as this, I think about it as, as like uh, brain or data center where they, their asset is a bunch of cars they are driving around and they know everything about where those cars are. And then the way they deliver that to you, the interface that they give you is the, the design is really I said earlier to be designed to be wrapped around your context. And so Uber doesn't care whether you open up your phone or whether you tap on your watch or whether you um, are in a text message or whether you're in Alexa uh, or, you know, sitting in your kitchen. You say, you know what, Uh, I want to call a car. The thing that's important to remember, though, is what other data you have in that context. So in the Alexa example, Uber could have said, where is your uh, what what's your okay, you want to order an Uber, what's your address? It's not particularly easy to speak your address to Alexa, make sure it gets it right, confirm it, make a change. Oh, you, you know, you heard a three, I said five. And that's that's much harder. So Uber, I think very smartly in their onboarding, just has you type in your location. And what that means is that they now have the context for for you to always have that uh, for them to say order an Uber and it knows where it is. That reflects an understanding that the company has, that it is most likely that where your Alexa is isn't going to change. If they did that same design in the mobile app, it wouldn't make sense. Because most of the time when you order a car, you're not at home, right? Or enough times, even if 90%, even if 10% of the time you're not at home, it would be annoying to say, wait, that's not where I am. So in the phone, what they say is, OK, let's use the map dot." I mean, it's, it's sort of obvious to say, let's use your location because you're on the phone. I think we've had phones now for a decade. If we think about these new where, it's important for, for all of us as designers to think about, excuse me, where are the people who are using this, this sort of sliver of the app? What's the context that they're using it? And it's something as simple as, are they going to be willing to speak out loud? If they're in the office next to a bunch of coworkers in open space, they, then a user interface that requires them to speak out loud may not be that convenient. If they're walking around looking at the screen, may not be not that and not be that convenient. And so, having somebody having something that speaks into their ears, uh, might be a really good interface. And so, just keeping sort of marrying those things and making sure that you use the data from other places to make the easiest possible, the most frictionless experience.
0: Hmm. And it sounds as though, in that respect, and that example you give is is a company that has a core of data and technology that essentially and that's i think another point you mentioned a core of data that brain of of data and technology that then feeds out into these other channels going into the the voice space is that where you see voice ending up is very much one slither as to use your words a slither of interaction as part of a broader set of communication tools
2: yeah so i think i think there's probably two kinds of companies that will get built uh, one kind of company will be these on-demand interface companies, meaning they don't care where you are. They their service is, as you said, um, sort of it's a it's one it's one brain, it's one one core set of data, and they're just delivering their car service to you, their animated gifts to you, wherever you are. They actually don't care what your, your the user experience is just the, the whatever is is most convenient for you. Um, I do think there's a second kind of company. I think that is going to be sort of voice first or conversation first. And those kinds of companies will look at will look at the media type, like a voice interface, and say, OK, we know that this is a smart speaker. What's the best, given that we know that someone's standing in their kitchen, in their living room, they're speaking to this thing, what kind of experience do they want? And what can we do here that's really different from what's been done before? So the easy example to point to is, uh, if the food network, the food network launched an Alexa skill. It's not they 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 thought about taking the YouTube videos which they have or the videos and just put the audio on. But what they realized was when people are watching video, it's a lean back experience. They might be there's a, other things that they're doing, and that content didn't resonate as well. And so they created totally new Alexa skills that were designed to be interacted with. That were just that knew that they were in the kitchen where you could ask them questions. And I think that that kind of those kinds of companies. So you sort of have the companies that are. Not voice first, but sort of agnostic to the interface. They just want to deliver their service to you most conveniently. And then you have company, totally new kinds of companies that couldn't exist before, types of experiences or or um, uh, user interactions that couldn't exist before that now that now um, matter a lot. And I think an example of that I, I know we're talking about a little bit, but an example of that is even in podcasting, as a just broad voice interface, Gimlet is building HBO for podcasting. I don't think it would make sense for HBO to say, let's take all of our shows and just use the audio version them the podcast. That wouldn't really make, that wouldn't be a, uh, a good transfer of media
0: type. Mm, yeah yeah absolutely yeah that's interesting actually because it is um one of the the main things when you know I've been speaking to people and asking about some of the differences between uh voice and a sort of VUI and and the GUI kind of thing and that's kind of tends tends to be something that crops up quite a lot is that designing for voice is entirely different to designing for a screen um and I think you've kind of encapsulated it well there in terms of the food network because just because you have audio (laughs) doesn't mean that it's actually going to work on another platform does it?
2: Yeah, and, and I think particularly with voice, there are so many subtle differences from designing for an app. Um, one, one, one that is now obvious that was not obvious when the smart speaker first came out is that there's no home screen. So you don't have choices to give to people. And when people talk about voice being linear, meaning I have to say one thing and then I say another thing and then I say a third thing versus visual where I can show you three things at once and you can pick the option. We had someone at BetaWorks who, over the weekend, designed a newsreader for voice and very quickly figured out that it's very, it's, they had to figure out how to tell you how to navigate it because there's no buttons. I don't know what the categories are. So, and he, he didn't have a solution to it. He just said, look, this is a fundamentally different design problem and that and is unique to voice interfaces. And the people who get that right, I think, are, are the people who get high retention, and, and the retention is another thing. Uh, there's nothing to remind you there's not really an effective push notification on a phone i can push notify you a text message. i can send something to you on voice you have to remember you have to get that trigger sort of baked into you internally to wake up in the morning and say alexa what's my flash briefing mm. because if you don't ask it it's not going to tell you
0: <laughs> yeah so um so you mentioned Betaworks uh, a little bit about Betaworks at the beginning. I wonder if we can just circle back slightly and talk about uh, VoiceCamp, which happened sure. uh, last, was it last year? Was it la- it, was, uh, last it year? was this past, uh, I think this past fall. Uh,
2: this past, it, it's, it, we, yeah, we did it, um, I don't even know what month it is. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so we did, uh, we did it last year. So um, what we do at Betaworks, I mentioned earlier, we, we started out building companies and seed investing in outside companies. And what we started to notice was that as these new interfaces emerge, a couple things happen. One is companies that uh, aren't doing that well start to pivot into that those new categories because investors are looking at them. Um, Sometimes that works, sometimes it doesn't. And then the other so and then the other thing that happens is a bunch of new people who are excited about that technology start building new things from the ground up. And so we decided was. Uh, for these new categories where we're really interested we want to dive deeply what if we go a little bit earlier than we normally do and we do pre-seed stage investments in these companies in just a handful of companies so five to ten and we invite them to come in work out of the betaworks office for three months and treat them almost as if they're a company that we've started in terms of we have at the top level of betaworks we have uh, sort of the the corporate level we have data science um, branding design uh, so people, uh, fundraising, people who can help with that and open those services up to, we don't usually open them up to outside companies, but say the companies like you are you're coming in your pre-seed stage, we'll help you, we'll help you put together your sort of test your product, think through the product, introduce you to a bunch of partners. So in voice, uh, Google Home was a partner, Amazon Alexa was a partner, Microsoft uh, has a Has uh, interesting speech recognition, speech generation, their partner. So, make them truly accelerate the development of the products that these people are building and then help them uh, hopefully raise uh, outside capital, build a business. And so that's what we did with with Voice Camp. We started that out with chat bots and conversational software. We called it Bot Camp. Uh, And then the next one we did was around uh, voice interfaces and called it Voice Camp.
0: Cool. And what, so one of the things that came out of that uh, was Jovo and we've spoken to Jan Koenig um, uh, last uh, few weeks back uh, from Jovo. That was that was really, really interesting. Um, what other things, about, obviously Jovo must have interested you, what other things about Voice Camp did interest you and, and is there any other companies within there who you either uh, invested in or, or kind of uh, keeping an eye on or, or anything like that?
2: So we've in, we invested in all, all uh, we had eight companies in VoiceCamp. We invested in all the companies. Um, and that's a part of being in VoiceCamp is we make an investment. Um, and so, uh, so you, you, you mentioned Jovo, and they were thinking about all the context first in, in a very similar way that we've been talking about. Uh, we invest, there's another company in VoiceCamp called Spoken Layer, which, is, which takes text, and they feed it through their API, and then they have a pool of on-demand voice actors and they will read that that text. One of the things they found was that speech synthesis is great if you're using it for a utilitarian purpose, like uh, tell me the weather or I want to log something, start and stop something. It's not so great if you want to listen to a whole article. So they started feeding, they, they partnered with media companies, that's who their customers are, and what they did was they said, we're going to find your most popular articles, we're going to have them read, and then we're going to turn that into a podcast and put it onto Spotify, put it onto uh, Stitcher, put it onto Alexa, put it onto Google Home. Now I think they power a significant portion of the Google Home news, uh, a, a large percentage of that, and and have a number of media partners. Another company that was really interesting that came through Voice Camp uh, was a company called Shine. They started out actually. They think about themselves as sort of conversational, and they started out with a text message service. It's a daily text message that uh, that gives you a, a sort of positive affirmation, and people actually respond to these text messages. They write back. They ask. They like tap to learn more. And they've been growing um, pretty pretty tremendously since uh, since uh, they, they finished up VoiceCamp. During Voice Camp, they launched or they built and then, and right after Voice Camp, Camp launched their first audio product. And that is a uh, it's you can find it in the App Store now. Uh, it's called Shine. And it is a an audio version, so you can speak back and forth to it. And it's almost like in this sort of category of, of mindfulness and mental wellness apps. But it's it's sort of the voice version it has a very specific personality um, and it ties really nicely in with the, the text message service. And that's and that's a product that they that they charge for.
1: Wow. one of the things that I found very interesting was of the eight companies that went through VoiceCamp, uh, four of those were tooling for voice first or conversational. Uh, and then you had a couple like ag voice with agricultural data collection that are more on the industry side, and you only had two uh, that were more consumer focused. Was that a purposeful choice, or how did that come about?
2: And, you know, we always think of ourselves as sort of consu- as consumer focused company, and I think uh, Beta Works in general, we we sort of think consumer first. But what we found is with Camp, there's often a lot of the innovation that happens in these more industrial categories. Uh, we are. Uh, Someone can come in who is an expert in that category, and then we can help with some of the expertise on the on the interface side. And so it's an opportunity for us to go outside of our normal comfort zone. So I think it's it's probably I think there's a couple of consumer companies I think ag. Voice who is we've never invested in an agricultural tech company before, but as they described the problem they were solving, it really was very consistent with what we see on the consumer side. You're walking through the field, uh, it's rained last night, and so it's dewy, you have an iPad, you have to bring a second person with you to type in because everyone's hands are getting wet because there's the corn everywhere. Mm-hmm. And so what if you could speak, what if you could speak into the voice of your face and then our hope is that we have dug deeply enough into voice that we sort of can tell can have a sense of whether the thing of developing will be first of all useful in that context, but also second of all, have a defenseable mode. So library the natural language processing library is uh, very specific to agricultural technology. I don't even really understand all the things they're saying when I see the demos, mm-hmm. let alone Alexa understand it, right. So you have to have very specific libraries that they built. Wow,
0: great. That sounds fantastic. Um, it's a learning
2: experience for us too.
0: <laughs> yeah. So, um, the, so you had the voice camp, that was last year, and you mentioned at the top of the show that this time now is vision camp. Now, is that vision camp um, all to do with, you mentioned at the very, very beginning about kind of camera and kind of like recognizing um, cameras being able to recognize shapes and objects. Is that kind of along the lines of what vision camp is?
1: Yeah,
2: when we started, we, we, as we decide what the next camp is going to be, when we were deciding, we were thinking that the three areas, an area of interest for us was, this ca- was the camera. It felt like the cameras were starting to get smart. First, we saw speakers get, uh, we saw text messages get smart and Slack channels get smart. We're starting to see cameras get smart. They're opening up. And so we thought about three categories. One was augmented reality. So things, anything from a Snapchat filter with a face filter that changes your face to to an avatar that gets projected. And so that's sort of injecting things into the camera view. right? Mm-hmm. Second category we thought about was computer vision, so understanding, the camera understanding what it's looking at, things like object detection, telling what's in a scene so that you can, and those two things interact together with augmented reality apps, they're both present. The third area we thought about was virtual reality. And the, the conclusion that we came to was that reality is related to these two because it's the same type of 3D objects that are projected into the camera it is still just early. And so we didn't what we decided to do just do the first two. And one of the key reasons was July, Apple released AR kit and 380 million people upgraded. So now you have a user base that is huge in your phone. And that's we view that as sort of augmented reality computer vision in the near term. In the longer term, we're really excited for things like the HoloLens to get adopted, for virtual reality to get adopted. And so that's we view it as sort of a very long play, but but in, in currently in camp, we have uh, uh, it's computer vision and augmented reality are really the the vision camp mm-hmm. focuses
0: cool um, so, so what can so, so we've spoke, spoke a little bit, bit about build works and about the <clears throat> um, the the various camps and, and companies that that have kind of been invested in, but you don't just do everything for Betaworks. You've got a, a personal brand that, that is visible online and you're kind of really kind of personally excited by the whole kind of voice space. Uh, and I wanted to just touch on the Hearing Voices newsletter, which you uh, curated sure. so, and put out there.
2: So, so one of the things that we do at Betaworks is we just, we follow developers. We like to, we're, I'm a coder. I, we like to see what new fun interface, what, what, what people are doing on the weekends. Or develop weekends, and so uh, for me personally, I've been very interested in conversational software, and it's sometimes hard to separate what the personal is from beta because I think at many people are interested about in the same kinds of new uh, new things. Uh, so what I decided to do was I I put to Peter, my uh, partner on the West Coast, had put together a newsletter around uh, virtual reality called VR Links, and. It was, we were talking about it and it's a very good way, having a newsletter is a good way to have a personal discipline around paying attention to all the news in the category. So I put together a newsletter called Hearing Voices uh, so that I would start to just read everything about voice interface because I was so excited about it. And then people would ask me, so I started to create this newsletter to let other people see what I was, the most kind of the top of what I was reading. New skills to try, new developer tools, new articles about how people were changing in design, how people were thinking about new products that were coming out. Um, so i started that newsletter and i started that probably about a year and a half ago and it's it is a uh, it's a very specific focus and it's it's been a lot of fun because i think it's it's created new relationships with people who are also interested in this category, and it's kind of a it's nice to have a newsletter sit alongside Twitter because I think mm-hmm. Twitter can sometimes be overwhelming in very real time. and a newsletter, people can read at their own pace. A lot of people respond to the newsletter now. I have people sending me stuff when they see something interesting, and I love including that and then giving them a shout out in it. Uh, so it's been fun. And then and then uh, we've always done this. I started a podcast because I was interested in audio, and uh, before we did the or as we were doing the Gimlet investment. Um, and I, uh, I built an Alexa skill uh, called Wi-Fi, where I think we talked about a little bit, or going to talk about. And so, I, I it's just sort of been a personal. Um, I don't know. You, know, I don't know what you do on the weekends. I sometimes uh, code Alexa skills.
0: <laughs> well, at the moment, most of the weekends are uh, editing uh, podcasts. <laughs> Believe it or not, right? No, I, and by the way,
2: that's that's a huge issue, right? Editing podcasts takes a long time. And so one of the things I'm doing is testing out a bunch of different editing tools and then also writing about those in, in the newsletter because I think a lot of people reading it are, just like you, some, some level of very involved in the space. And, and, and so that's hearingvoices.xyz if anyone wants to uh, sign up and, and learn more about it.
0: Fantastic. We'll put that link in the show notes. I've, I've been on, I was on the newsletter. Um, I've been on the newsletter for for a while, and then it was just a happy coincidence that uh, I think it was Jeff Smith who was on episode four, talking about uh, all about conversation AI, kind of introduced us uh, and said that yeah, he kind of curates the Hearing Voices newsletter. I was like, oh, that's how coincidental is that? I've been looking at that newsletter for the past few months.
2: <laughs> well, that's great, it's, it's, and it creates these kind of relationships too, which is which is great because I think a lot of what we're everyone's learning. The same, alongside each other at the same time and so it's part of it is just uh, trying to find ways to create community around voice interfaces and you're doing I think, uh, I think uh, what you're doing is, is a big piece of that
0: mm, mm, Cool so you mentioned in, in just then uh, you were talking about the fact that you kind of wanted to experiment a little bit with Alexa skill building uh, so seemingly one of the things that you may have done one weekend was to build the uh, Wi-Fi skill do you want to tell us a little bit about, about Wi-Fi? Sure
2: so so before we were doing voice camp we were thinking how can we promote voice camp i want to do we did with chat with bot camp we had a, a bot based application what can we do to uh kind of promote voice camp what could i do to learn about i was i was interested in wi-fi skills and so what happened was i actually made a I uh i made a, a wife an alexa skill for my friend for his wedding i gave him an alexa and i uh <laughs> and i made a custom skill for him and it did three, it did three things um <laughs> And this was just, I mean, it was like purely on the developer mode. I just I like added him to it as to be a developer. So this skill is not in the store. And I recorded a bunch of his friends giving him marriage advice. So he could ask it for marriage advice and tell him the answer. Um he could ask it there was something oh, I would welcome certain people into the room, so all of our friends. It had like a little sentence uh, I would say, you know, "Hi Matt, thanks for buying me" or something like that, or "Thanks for <laughs> giving, us, giving us this Alexa," and then but um, something like sort of cute around uh, each of the friends. And then the third thing I thought of was you know, everybody, when you walk into a room, when you have a friend come over, they always ask you the Wi-Fi password and often it's something really long and annoying. And so like, if you're my parents, you write it down and put it on the kitchen and then you're kind of like typing it down and you get one letter wrong and it's off. And I was thinking that, so the third thing I had to do is you could, I added their Wi-Fi router name and password. They so could say, tell me the wife, uh, tell me the wifi password. So anybody who came over, they could say it and you could hear it and then just type it in. So you don't have to look back and forth. And, uh, and I, I showed to them and they, uh, they liked it. And then I told a couple of people about it and they were like, I want that. And so I <laughs> built this, uh, I built this uh, skill with a friend of mine um, named Or Arbo who wrote, he, he created an app called Yo a while ago that uh, got popular. And he and I built this, I built a version of this and then uh, it was it a was, uh, very rudimentary version. So he helped me build the, the, the production level version. And this skill, all it does is you put in your username and password and then uh, your, your Wi-Fi name and password. And then anyone who's in your apartment so if they're, or your house in New York or New um apartments can ask it the Wi-Fi name and password, or the Wi-Fi name, and it'll tell you the name and password. But it only, you know, it's, it's security-wise, you're in the, you're, they're in your apartments, so presumably you're open to giving them the Wi-Fi. <laughs> and and uh, so I launched that, and and then I sort of, um, uh, we, I launched it. learned a lot from it. One of the things that was Interesting that uh, we, we had to deal with this onboarding. It's actually hard to say, speak your password into Alexa because you have weird symbols and stuff. So what we end up doing was you say your phone number into it and it texts you and you type in the username and password. And then from then on, it will speak it to you. So that's that was a skill we made. And then uh, I kind of forgot about it. And then more recently, I think I was telling you that I started getting emails from Amazon saying, "You're if you're if you're in a certain one of the one of the top skills. I mean, it's not super popular, but one of the top. If you're among the sort of top skills, they won't tell you a lot of details about it, but they'll start mm-hmm. to to pay you, so you kind of keep keep development going. And so uh, and so I got an I got an email saying, Alexa, the, the Wi-Fi skill is one of the more popular skills, so we're starting to pay you. And so now I'm I realize I got to go back and start to um, keep it more up to date. But when I looked back at, I didn't realize it had. Uh, over 10,000 people had installed it. So that was sort of exciting to see that. I don't know how they found it, this goes to what problems are (laughs) in in voice. I don't know what discovery was. I would, uh, I'd be annoyed with myself if I was pitching myself that I didn't know (laughs) user acquisition was, but uh, it was starting to get some popularity.
0: Wow, and it was quite. You mentioned when we spoke before, it was quite quite had a big spike over Christmas, didn't it? Yeah, it was interesting. That was when I
2: started to get the emails from Amazon because I think what happened was we weren't doing anything differently. So I think what happened was a lot of people bought Alexas over the over the holidays, and we saw a giant spike. And so it was just interesting to see that in our data we could see in installs that there was a a big a big uh, surge in. Alexa ownership and uh, it's it's they've done a, a great job getting I, I've heard I don't know what the real numbers are I want to say there's like 30 million or that's what was projected to be the the total number of of speakers in homes
0: mm. yeah we were speaking to um, I think Vasily Shinkarenka from uh, Storyline um, the other day and he, he was the he, I think he said it was something around about 40 million is that right yeah it's yeah, it, something like that, it yeah. may have
2: exceeded the, the projections yeah
0: Wicked. Uh, that, I'm, I'm uh, getting married at the end of the year, so I think you maybe should uh, start developing that marriage, marriage advice skill as well. Quite <laughs> quite <happy. laughs> so, so what were that was presumably your, your first kind of dabble with, with Alexa skill development. Yeah. Um, and you wrote a post also about some of the uh, things that you learned about it, which were will put in the show notes. I wonder if you can touch on some of the things that you learned while you were going through that development process.
2: Yeah, I mean, one of the... I learned a lot. Um, one of the things was just how hard retention is in voice. And when I if, when I think back, this skill sounds like it's going to be useful. But when you think about the actual implications of what it means, you as a guest coming over to my house or my office asking for the Wi-Fi password, you need to know that I have Wi-Fi. Until Wi-Fi is uh, a, a sort of um, a, a a household name uh, it, the you won't you don't know to say Wifi please tell me the Wi-Fi password and so that's that was sort of a, a mistake that I made in, in the design I mean I think I'm not sure there's an answer for it it may mean that it's just it's not a great use case but I thought that was a mistake I think that one of the things that worked surprisingly well was the text message onboarding I think that people have a really they, I, I am confused still when Amazon says go into the Alexa app, and then open it. The, you have to search for the skill you already have, and then you do the onboarding to link your account. It's not so easy. And I think having a text message really um, reduced the friction. We were talking about reducing friction earlier. The interface, if you think about it, it's easy to speak your phone number. Don't asking any, ask anybody to go to a computer. Uh, so that was one thing. And, and then having them be able to text back was very helpful. Another thing that I think was really helpful was that we did early on we had a, a text a, a, a box on the um on the sign up page so if you learned about wiffy at, at work but your alexa was at home we had um a, a thing to just say send it, give us your phone number and we'll text you tonight and that was another one we we're just trying to think of what are the things that are going to co- that are going to prevent people from doing this i noticed this with myself when people send ipad apps to test my ipad's at home and so I can never test it during work. So I have to remind myself to, text, to test at home. And I think that if you look at iPad adoption, the apps are harder to get adoption for because I think people, part of the reason is just because they don't go viral because people don't always have them versus if I have my phone and you tell me something, I can download it right now. And so I think that was, it's, all, it's always to me about learning about how people are behaving with technology.
1: Yeah, and I think that really goes back to what you were talking about earlier about the reducing the friction. Uh, yeah. like that, you really build that in the skill from day one.
2: Yeah, and then that was and that was part of the fun of it, right? It, it's like part of the fun of designing these things is no one's really had to tackle these issues before, and you get to try your hand at what you think is going to work. And then the reality is you you put it out there, and then you see how people react, and then you iterate and see what what changes, and you do a couple of different tests and see what works, and uh, and hopefully track uh, all of the all of the ways people are acting. And we, as a result, ended up with a whole lot of people who made it through. Uh, onboarding, who gave phone numbers and who installed the skill, which is kind of cool. What we didn't anticipate was the low retention. Well, I shouldn't call it retention. It's not a frequent use case. So people have the have it on their on their uh, on their uh, Alexa, but they might only ask it what the Wi-Fi password is once or twice a month, which is fine. That's what it's designed mm-hmm. for. Mm-hmm.
0: How did you kind of, how did you go about doing the whole text thing then? How does that all work behind the scenes? So uh, we used, um,
2: so we actually didn't use Twilio, but we used a Twilio competitor called, I think Pl- uh, plavo or plevo. Um, it's a, just a less expensive version of Twilio. That's it's, we, we, all that happens is in the background, what happens is you ask, you enable your skill, it hits a server. And that's our our software. One of the pages talks to Alexa. Another page will end up hitting hitting the the text message service. But it's 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 just sort of using Twilio, it's a Twilio like product in the background. Um, and then it's it's weird to think about, but that's what I'm talking about with multimodal. I mean, it's, we have one brain. It's one, and then just microservices. One hits Alexa. One hits the phone. And then it and then we have the database of of information. We just answer the question that people are asking at that time, and we keep track of. Where they are in the onboarding process.
0: Wicked. I don't suppose you know, roughly speaking, what the um, sort of success rate of that onboarding process is. If have you're have you able to track the text messages to installs uh, and stuff like that. You know what?
2: I need to look. Um, That's a it's a good question, and I would know. We had a we actually had a, an error in the uh, text message, which I found out recently when when Alexa started emailing me, <laughs> and so we have to. So I'm, I'm now in the process this weekend of. Of going and getting everything set back up, and I think at some point, point this isn't a service that I want to keep maintaining. So at some point, I'll probably see if somebody wants to uh, to take it over. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we'll see where, where that goes.
0: Yeah, and one of one of the uh, maybe potentially a contribute contributing factor to that would be: Are you still getting paid from Amazon for it?
2: it's not it's not a lot of money but amazon pays uh pays enough for us to to sustain sort of sending text message and paying for a little bit of extra development work if we want to outsource that but we just do it ourselves and uh and uh and so yeah it's it's i think i suspect that if somebody wants if somebody who would find it interesting would use it as a beachhead to get other we have a lot of uh a lot of users and so they would start to say okay what else can we build on top of this mm. and this is going to be one service among many
0: yeah Cool. Okay. Well, if anyone out there who is interested in potentially uh, uh, getting hold of it, then we can, we can put some, some links. If you've got any links anywhere or anything like that, uh, we can, we can, uh... yeah, it's, well, it's,
2: yeah, it's, it's www.wiffy.co is the, uh, is the website. And then of course I'm Matt Hartman. On, not of course I'm Matt Hartman on Twitter. But Twitter is an easy way to, for me to communicate with people. And then they, if they subscribe to my newsletter, you can also res- uh, respond to the newsletter.
0: <laughs> so, lots of
2: ways to get in touch.
0: Um, what then um, we'll just do one final kind of wrap up before we uh, before we moved on you touched on a few challenges in, in the, the voice space there's, there's two real things that, that I think would be interesting to, to to cover the first one is you touched on a lot of the challenges in the voice space regarding onboarding being one being uh, retention being another and also discoverability of of skills and things being, being another are there any other things that stick out in your mind that, that would be a challenge in the industry and, and what do you think the solution is to those? Well,
2: I mean, if I were to throw one more in there, I would say monetization. I think
0: podcast monetization
2: is starting to get figured out. Companies like Gimler are doing an amazing job. Um, I think that the monetization, again, when I think about smart speakers is, is a more interesting than just sort of a pure podcast uh, medium. Mm. It's There's a lot. Alexa happens to be paying, uh, Amazon happens to be paying people who have Alexa skills, but they could decide to turn that off tomorrow. Mm not lost on any developers of Alexa that Amazon has everyone's credit card number. So if they turned on some kind of payments, that would work, but there's real platform risk there, right? If Amazon, mm. Amazon's business is selling, uh, selling things to you. And so if you were to create a competitor to that, would they, mm. would they like that? Would they shut you off? I don't know. Mm. And so I think figuring out what monetization looks like in in skills, whether that's skill things that people are willing to pay for, whether uh, there's an ad network to be to be built there, mm. I think that's a big open area. And you know, it's it, in some ways isn't necessarily an area where startups can tackle on their own because there's because there's so many big companies that are controlling the end user points in this in this category.
0: Mm. And. Finally, then we when we spoke on the forum previously, you we were kind of talking about the general voice scene and stuff like that. And you mentioned that the New York, where where BetaWorks is based, is is quite a vibrant place for, for voice uh, for the voice industry. Is there any companies out there who are exciting you at the moment over in New York? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think
2: new one of the reasons New York is interesting is because there's media here. There's a lot of. Uh, content creators there's a lot of taste in new york mm-hmm. and so one a company uh, that i don't think we've talked about yet is anchor which yes. is a audio first Voice platform, and then they are double. They then just launched actually the 3.0 version and are doubling and tripling down on podcasting. I think part of the reason that they can be successful is because they're in New York. They are so close to these people who are former radio, former um, journalists, or journalists who are now exploring the audio medium. New York Times Daily has been sort of exploded in that space in New York. I think you have a lot of creative talent that is very excited about audio, and this is sort of podcasting renaissance and audio interface renaissance that's happening here. So I think that's part of the reason that a lot of this is happening in New York.
0: Wicked. Cool. Uh, before we wrap up, Dustin, have you got any other questions for Matt before we? Uh...
1: Yeah, Matt, what What are the future skills you're going to be building on the weekends? What's What do you <laughs> want to see on Alexa?
2: One of the things that I have always wanted, I think, sometimes you think you want this stuff and the ability realize it's not right doesn't really fit your context. But when I walk around, I listen to a lot. So I listen to audiobooks, I listen to podcasts, I listen actually to um, articles read to me by Instapaper. Instapaper can you can there's a button where you can create a playlist and it'll read it in the Siri voice. And so I started to do one of the categories I want to listen to is my email newsletters. So what I do with that, my hack for it is I forward an email newsletter I want to listen to. I forward that to the, uh, the to my Instapaper account. There's an email address for my Instapaper account. And then it shows up in Instapaper and I can listen to it. What I would love is for some sort of like podcast version of the newsletters I get because they're relatively short and then I don't click on all the articles. And so if there's something, it'd be cool if there's a voice interface where I listen to it. And then if they said, oh, if you want to read more, like, you know, say something, say yes. And we'll just email you a link to the article or we'll add that to your queue. So you could just keep almost navigating like an audio browser. And I think that that's... I think I want that. I don't know. I don't know if reading it in sort of that automated Siri voices is is good enough. But I think that some of the voice, uh, the the text to speech is getting pretty good.
0: Fantastic. That sounds like a decent idea. I think I'd jump on that as well. Actually, it's hard to get time Mm -hmm. sometimes, isn't it, to to read everything. Uh, fantastic okay then uh, so Matt you mentioned uh, where people can get in contact with uh, with yourself and we'll put those kind of contacts on, on the bottom but do you want to just refresh that in terms of where people can yeah. reach you yeah I'm, I'm,
2: I'm active on Twitter my DMs are open it's at Matt Hartman and and uh, and then my newsletter is hearingvoices.xyz uh,
0: fantastic thank you very much Matt
2: thank you so much for having me uh, having me and I uh, look forward to being a subscriber
0: that was Matt Hartman from Betaworks. That was a really interesting episode. That completely different to some of the stuff that we've been doing um, in the last few episodes, which I think is really refreshing that he's, got, he's such a visionary, Matt. I mean, he, he completely gets this industry. He completely gets the, the, where this can head. Uh, he really does have his ear to the ground in terms of uh, who's doing what and what companies are are making really great moves and the potential for all of this technology and what I really liked um, I think over and above everything is how the friction-free concept is really at the front of his mind and you can really tell that when you think about the the text reminders for his Wi-Fi skill um, and and all of those examples he's wrote about in the the, um, article which we'll link to which was all about Um, using the interface uh, of choice given your context and it's all about reducing that friction so I think there was there was some great insights in there for designers and developers and there was also some really great insights in there for brands and agencies and people who are looking at the voice space in a more strategic view um, in terms of you know where the industry is right now what the challenges are and where it's heading so that was a, an immensely interesting episode so thank you very much matt for uh, for taking the time to to speak to us uh, thank you dustin for co-hosting and thank you all for listening and until next time boys and girls see you later